Who, who wants to do it? I, do, I don't know the intro. <laughs> well, I don't know the intro, but I just f***ing wing it every week. Alright, hello everyone and welcome to the OSINT Bunker Podcast. It is episode 6 and honestly, it has been a fairly quiet last two weeks, which um, honestly, we're happy about. Let's let's just say that we are genuinely. I know it normally means less news for us to talk about, but when you get to actually deal with less of the crazy stuff, it, it is we appreciate that so much more. Yeah, sometimes no news is uh, very it's very good. good news. No news is some no news is good news. Yeah, it, I mean, it definitely gives us a chance to sort of sort of you know take a step back, reevaluate everything that you know all the other stuff that's been going on that isn't you know let's say, just in our face. Of course, you know, Carrier Strike Group 21 getting underway. Um, I know you guys really wanted to talk about that. And um, I, of course, wanted to um, sort of hit on briefly before we just get started. Of course, we have to talk about Ukraine. Um, it does seem like Russia is pulling back. Um, that is that is one thing that we definitely are starting to see. Um, it, it looks like they're going to be mostly pulling back troops at the moment. Um, obviously, that's the most expensive thing to keep in the area. Um, they do seem to be, you know, leaving some equipment behind. But at least for now, the episode of, you know, extreme brinkmanship, you know, uh, the the threat of invasion has mostly passed. Um, but, you know, going into the future, obviously, Russia sort of discovered the limit of what they could do and the NATO certainly laid a line in the sand, at least I think, um, from, from what we yeah. can see. I think it was, I think it was mostly verbal from NATO, um, which we, we kind of expected anyway. We weren't really expecting to see troops start moving towards Ukraine. Um, but I, I think it's been interesting as well because while there have been some NATO nations have been very, very vocal, very public about their thoughts on it, um, generally speaking, NATO itself has stayed relatively quiet, um, at least in public. And I, I, I do have to wonder how much has been said behind the scenes, how many phone calls have been made to the Kremlin. Um, you know, we, 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 we talk about the hotline between the US and uh, the Kremlin. And I do believe that has been in use in this instance, but we probably won't find out to what extent for a good many years to come. Yeah, it does look like a summit between Biden and Putin will be um, coming together, at least over the summer. Um, that is definitely something that came out of this. It came out of it, but to be honest, it seems more than anything just to be a symbolic summit, just to basically tick it off and done. As basically, it was offered as an op offered as essentially, we'll have a talk if you stop what you're doing. And so the actual summit itself, I don't think anything will come of it. I think it's merely a sim, a basically a symbolic and and sort of very very much mundane diplomatic move. Definitely, that that is part of it. And as 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 John said, a lot of the stuff is happening in the background. I'm I'm absolutely sure. Um, but what we can see, at least from the surface level right now, is it is mostly over, but the status quo has definitely changed a bit. Um, you know, there's a lot more equipment in the area, and Russia's sort of established how far they're willing to go, at least right now. Um, with, of course, you know, moving equipment into the region, moving troops into the region, and sort of, you know... 
I, I'm not exactly sure what their entire goal was there, because it obviously wasn't cheap. It, it cost no. them a lot to do this, both in political capital and just regular money. And um, just think about economic cost as well, the requisitioned um, train uses from farmers as well, so it's clearly hit their hit their economy and hit, and hit food stocks and food. It would have had an effect on food deliveries. Yeah, I'm just, I'm sort of confused what their goal was. Um, It just, it... It, it doesn't really make sense what they were sort of aiming at achieving here because they already sort of we already sort of knew where the red line was. It was Russia moving troops across the border into Ukraine. That's pretty much what we where we knew it was. But I I guess the Russians tested what NATO's political response would be. I just I don't see the the reason I, I for all the capital spent. I think you kind of alluded to it earlier. Um... You know, it, it's more a case of Russia was seeing how much equipment they could move to the border of NATO before there was a major fuss kicked up. Because, as, as you know, as we pointed out last time we did this, um, there was no secret about the amount of equipment moving to the border. You know, even we could see how much kit was being moved to the border via satellite imagery, commercially available via people on the ground filming the trains, the tanks and stuff on them, driving past. So it wasn't, I, I think for Russia, it was more a case of, well, how much kit can we move before, you know, Western leaders actually start taking notice and start kicking off about it? And how, you know, how, how much can we play around the lion's tail before it starts to get annoyed? I think an important thing as well is whenever whenever America does elect a new president, Russia does like to see how far they can push how far mm. they can they can push that particular particular leader so they know well this is the scope we can operate with it in for the next four years. Oh, and the Biden administration certainly is bringing people in who are far more hawkish on Russia. Um, there's proper there's a there's proper responses being given to Russia's action rather than just something to grab media's attention. There's an actual serious diplomatic responses given. Yeah, I mean, we we saw you know diplomats being sent home. We saw you know active reconnaissance flights daily. You know, multiple assets. You know, at the same time. Um, so we we're definitely providing the Ukrainians with as much material support as we possibly could at the time, and we're seeing more. Um, supplies being sent there as well. It just, it, it comes back to, you know, perhaps they were distracting domestically from the Nelvani issues. Um, that That is a possibility. It just, it I don't think Putin thinks he has that thin or, or that weak of a control over his own people. And, and of it, course, we've, we've still got this ongoing diplomatic issue between Russia and several of the Eastern European countries. With obviously the revelations from Bell and Cat and uh, their own internal investigations, um, thinking particularly about the, that 2014 explosion, which has now been attributed to the same two uh, Russian spies who were involved in the Salisbury Novichok poisonings. As well, you obviously had the Czech diplomats going back and back and forth as well. I mean, the Czechs as well asked for more, asked for a more unified response from Europe, and well, they don't really seem to have gotten that. Many countries are kind of just kind of shushed about it, really. Yeah, well, we're seeing different levels of response from different places. Obviously, in the Czech Republic, we're seeing a very distinct response. Um, you know, the UK was prepared to <laughs> sail <laughs> sail CSG-21 into, you know, 
into the Mediterranean if they had to. Um, so I guess we sort of saw a piecemeal response, but just not this unified response, which I guess possibly Russia was probing at to see, you know, how unified will NATO be on the issue? And NATO, fairly obviously, each country took their own, you know, individual response, and there wasn't as much of a unified one. Like, things like NATO has different responses when it's obviously involved in a non-NATO member, and even when it doesn't involve a NATO member, if it's not a direct sort of hostile military action, the responses tend to be sometimes a bit all over the place, but I, but I still think regardless if it's an actual direct military action taken against any NATO member, a unified response from NATO, I think, is, un- is pretty, you can pretty much guarantee it. Oh, oh, obviously. And we're sort of back to this Cold War status quo. Um... You know, where it's basically NATO versus Russia and the, you know, at least stable of countries that Russia is building up. Not so much as much as the Warsaw Pact anymore, but um, definitely, you know, sort of a confederation that they're putting together that, you know, is quickly growing closer and closer. And obviously the situation in Belarus is probably going to end in Russian annexation in the next few years. Um, But, you know, we're, we're just seeing this... I don't know, snowball and, and sort of descend back into these, you know, 1980s style confrontations. Um, and as I always said, you know, the 1980s were bad. Sure. There was always that constant threat of nuclear war, but the velocity of escalation wasn't really changing. It it was sort of just staying the same, but now we're sort of seeing, you know, just things ramp up and ramp up and ramp up quicker and quicker and quicker. And, you know, it's it's a lot different than it was during the Cold War, where you know uh, the the some of the worst tensions in the Cold War were during the you know 1950s and early 1960s when we saw that escalation sort of ramp up very quickly. Um, you know, uh, Suez Crisis, um, yeah, the multiple crises crises in Berlin, um, and then of course the Cuban Missile Crisis, and. I think definitely velocity of escalation is the thing to look at, um, at least right now. And I think it's worth as well just mentioning that it's it's not quite as clear-cut as NATO versus Russia anymore either, because we've obviously got nations like Turkey and Iraq, and you know it's some of those neighbouring countries in sort of Eastern Europe and, and into Asia, who are now kind of on the border, they're allies to one side at one moment in time, but they're also a lot allies to the other side in different circumstances. So um, the one thing that we can rely on, I think the one thing we can rely on is in a NATO versus Russia situation, Turkey probably is going to side with NATO, just historical reasons, you know, animosity with Russia and, you know, current reasons. Um, they're they're most likely to focus on their own territory first in that situation, but you know closing off something like the Bosphorus uh, to you know to shipping is going to hurt Russia a lot more than it would hurt NATO. Massive, massively. I mean, obviously, it limits the NATO states of Romania and Bulgaria moving shipping out, but obviously their navy navies isn't really that of a significant asset, and obviously it hurts NATO getting in. But but NATO can simply conduct NATO could quite literally conduct missions quite safely from the Mediterranean. It just, I think it all just comes down to this question of, you know, where is Russia going to stop and how far is NATO willing to go? Um, You know, is NATO willing to resolve the issue, you know, in Eastern Ukraine? Probably not. Um, Can Ukraine... 
I think NATO's pretty adamant that the situation in eastern Ukraine with Dom- with the Donbass is a matter for Ukraine themselves to handle, as opposed to Crimea, which is an in and sort of a, pro- a, a territorial dispute which with larger ramifications. Yeah. Um. And well, the issue with Crimea is there isn't active fighting in Crimea, and there's active fighting in eastern Ukraine. Um. Which definitely changes the equation if Ukraine wants to be admitted into NATO, because you would basically be admitting in a country that is under active invasion, and, and you know, Article 5 being triggered, I mean, they could trigger it immediately if they wanted to. Yeah, so I, I think that's probably where it stands right now. Um, I, I don't think we'll see anything else this year, hopefully, praying on that, um, but... You know, Russia just incurred a very large expense to establish something they probably already knew. The whole thing just seems just so utterly pointless for the cost of it. I I just, I I still can't figure out the reason. And, you know, I'm sure people will be very glad to tell us their their thoughts in the comments and, you know, what they think the reason is. It's just, we, we really can't come to a reason at the end of the day. It's like Russia could, without doing this, the the Russian government and their military chiefs and their diplomats could come to a pretty reasonable conclusion of how far they could push things without needing just to incur this expense. Yeah, it's it's it. At the end of the day, it's just confusing. That's 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 all I have to say. But you know, it's Russia, right? They're gonna do what they're gonna do. Yep. So let's move on to uh, Carrier Striker Twenty One and um, the. <laughs> <laughs> okay all right i've been i've been following this sort of from from the outside so I, I can laugh at whatever drama is happening on twitter without really having you know a stake in it obviously i do sort of have a stake now you know marines getting deployed to you know the queen elizabeth to operate f-35b's um but it is sort of funny just to watch from from an outsider's perspective so we've had the Strike group depart depart off into the English Channel as part for its event for its eventual deploy, deployment through the Mediterranean into Asia, but first it's going off to um off to Scotland for exercise Joint Warrior, where it'll be taking part in specifically it'll be taking part in the Strike Warrior element of that, which will be bringing some various tests and demonstrate demonstrations of equipment, ensuring they're all working as working as expected, ready for the group. And then we'll eventually see it come back round and head head off through to the Mediterranean, where it's going to link up. First of all, it'll be linking up with the Charles de Gaulle carrier on their on the front with the French making their way back from India for some joint oper- some joint operations and training training with them. And recently announced today that it was when it when it gets towards Eastern Mediterranean, the F thirty fives will be taking part in part in Operation Shader. Uh, we did have F-35s take part previously, when the f- a few years ago, where they took part took part by providing reconnaissance from Akrotiri, but this will be the co- first combat missions launched off the carrier. Yeah, and around about the same time as the uh, F-35s are taking part in Op Shader over Iraq and Syria, um, we've now had confirmed as well this evening that the uh, Dutch frigates um, along with two of the Royal Navy escorts, will be detaching from the carrier strike group in the Mediterranean and mm-hmm. making their way into the Black Sea. Um, I certainly think mainly this... as, as, as a sort of warning to Russia in light of recent events. 
Because as far as I was aware, that it was going to originally be one Royal Navy ship would detach to go to the Black Sea, but it seems to have been upgraded to two, and now, obviously, the Dutch. Hmm. Yeah, the Dutch confirmed this evening that their frigate will be uh, going with the Royal Navy into the Black Sea, uh, part of that NATO task force, uh, as well as making various stops along the way after that in India. Indonesia, Singapore, South Korea, and Japan. And obviously we've had the aircraft that have been beginning to embark from, well, they were embarking on Saturday when it left with the Merlin HM2s for ESW on the carrier and the AEW Merlins. The escorts have all had their Wildcats moved onto it. And with the, well, yesterday, some of the US US Marine Corps and some of the F 85s from 617 Squadron have joined. Yeah, Still... I believe the rest of those jets have, uh, or most of the rest of those jets have touched down today. We've had some uh, wonderful photos and videos coming uh, from various Royal Navy photographers on board. I think now, I think, I think, I think possibly all of the, um, all of the, um, USMC ones are on board, and I think there's just a couple more British ones to get, to come. And while, while we're on this topic of, of the US carrier strike group, I just want to mention um, something which uh, those of you who follow me on Twitter will have seen. I made a bit of a fuss about it on Twitter the other day. Um, there was an article by the Daily Express which just <laughs> blew my mind for all the wrong reasons. For the, for the, um, la for the lack of brain cells present. Yeah, I, I, I can't even begin to um, like just explain how much pain it caused me in my soul. Um, but I just wanted to make it absolutely clear for anyone who's listening to this who hasn't seen my tweets but has perhaps made, uh, read the article. Um, firstly, yes, there are Russian spy ships near Scotland. No, they have not intercepted. The carrier. The carrier is currently in the English Channel, so that's not really what you'd call an interception. Um, secondly, the carrier does not launch a nuclear submarine. Oh my god, I remember um, seeing that. That was the worst thing I've seen. I'll, I'll give the, the writer of that article the benefit of the doubt, and perhaps they just phrased it really poorly. But you, I, I, I just... The, it didn't help that one of the photos um, in the article also had the inscription suggesting that, that was what they meant. Um, yes, there is a nuclear-powered submarine as part of the carrier strike group. We believe it's one of the astute class vessels. We don't know which one because that's part of the operational security. But, um, yeah, just no, carriers do not launch submarines. Um, nor do submarines launch carriers, as someone then replied to me in a tweet, and I just, oh gosh, I just thought, nope, let's not have this argument now. Um, seriously, guys, um, just be aware that even the mainstream media is inherently rubbish when it comes to defence news. Um, I have to admit, this is probably the worst article I have read um, regarding defence in a good few years now, um, and I do hope that the Express consider taking it down or at the very least rewriting it quite heavily um, because it, it just it does not help, uh, you know, dealing with 
fake news and so on when you're pumping out an article that looks as professional as that one did, but makes as little sense as it did. Um, well, I understand like it's for the, the love of sensationalism, but Russian spy ships are just a, a given for basically any NATO exercise, for, you know, any NATO... Um, activity any any carrier strike group usually is getting trailed by something i mean during during the cold war this was this was a given this was a you know if you're going out with a carrier strike group there's gonna be a russian trawler following you you know it, it's freedom of navigation they can operate you know uh, outside of 12 nautical miles from any you know coast it, it's just they do this <laughs> in standard practice, a Russian a Russian ship transits the English Channel. It gets monitored by the by the French Navy and the Royal Navy. Yeah, it's like it... every country's go every country's going to monitor a foreign vessel that isn't exactly from a nation that isn't isn't allied to them pass by. Yeah, the the Russians just more like using you know fixed seaborne assets for intelligence monitoring than airborne assets. Well, like, just look at the Black Sea. The U.S. Coast Guard set entered the Black Sea. They were picked up straight away and followed by the Russians. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it. everyone does this. It's not, like, sensational. I mean, they're they're basically fishing trawlers. I mean, how how are they going to even intercept, like, the, the striker? Just, like... I... Intercept, intercept is, like, what you, what you keep for, like, fight, what you prefer to fight the jets with. Yeah, I just, I, like... Are they going to drop fishing nets in front of the fleet and, like, try to catch them that way? I just... <laughs> it's it's overstating the actual reality of the situation for clicks. And it just... It, one, it raises tensions. It makes, you know, ordinary people think that, oh, the Russians are going to go fight us now. No, they're not. They have, you know, they have a few intelligence ships following a brand new, you know, UK carrier around. Of, of course they do. Yeah, like, like what I want to add to the um, about that article you mentioned is just the misconception that people seem to like the I because the carrier strike group has got the Dutch Navy and the U.S. Navy involved, and people seem to assume that simply down to oh, you don't have enough ships to escort it. Like people seem to feel that feel to realize the concept of pretty much any NATO carrier strike group that goes anywhere on a deployment will have one to, one to two to sometimes three vessels from other NATO members escort escorting it. It's just part of the mm. wider training and part of if you do go to war, that'll like that'll probably likely be the case that other vessels will escort your carrier. This is a brand and, new and it's, format. It's not even just NATO. You know, you, you, when the uh, US carriers are operating out in the Arabian Gulf and pushing through to the South China Sea, it's not unusual to see the Indian Navy supply a frigate or a destroyer. Exactly. Um, to escort and japan is you know the same situation when, when the carriers are out there that you see the japanese navy supplying a destroyer or a destroyer escort um even sometimes a submarine out there um as part of that wider battle group well the indian navy are going to attach um a frigate to the french carrier strike group for a couple of weeks as part of training while they're there yeah i think the main thing about the fact that it is a brand new you know carrier that obviously it's going to be practicing interoperability with other NATO, you know, forces and other allies. And that's something you would expect to happen with the first time it sails. You know, N NATO, you know, doesn't exactly have, you know, the operating procedures down, you know, perfectly yet. And they're sort of trying to figure it out because it's the first time it's gone out in like an actual deployment. It's a, 
as well though as well it it brings just it just brings genuine just training and experience that for example the dutch can collect plenty of experience through helping escort a carrier and bring that maybe if they're ever required to escort a u.s navy carrier the french carrier or the italian carriers yeah or or god forbid if they ever have to escort you know the queen elizabeth again like it's exactly. just just normal stuff and it's just it's just such a common it's just such a common mis misconception portrayed by some and a Forbes writer was was guilty of this by writing an article that I got brought to my attention yesterday about the fact that saying that Britain can has no money to operate jets from it and has no money to actually escort it, even though there is more than enough escorts available. Well, great. Worst case scenario, we'll just park more F-35Bs from the U.S. Marines on it. Exactly. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Look, even, I mean, even if the U.K. had, you know, zero F-35s, it still wouldn't matter because, you know, other countries at this point, let's see here, Italy is going to be acquiring F-35s um, for their own carrier. The U.S. has F-35Bs. Um, are there any other Sing countries that are have acquired? Was not, was not Singapore looking at the Bs or were they looking at the, a, the A's only? Also, you know, Singapore doesn't have a carrier, but... Yeah. I mean, I, I guarantee you, anyone who's going to be operating an F-35B is going to be attempting to acquire some interoperability training with yeah, look, any country um, with a flat top. South South Korea's got sort of not carriers, but more amphibious assault ships, and they've got and they've got plans to purchase the F-35B. Singapore's getting up to twelve F-35Bs. Yeah, well, the South Korea also there there have been. Um, rumblings in south korea that they're looking to acquire a carrier um which i know you know in theory sounds stupid but if you actually think about it in practice being able to separate a large you know carrier strike wing air wing mm -hmm. from you know land-based installations that'll probably be attacked by the north koreans it starts to make a lot of sense um, well, like a carrier for like south korea carrier is more than just a strike platform it's a humanitarian and aid relief platform that can be used for it can be purpose for amphibious assault if necessary yeah it can and, be purpose for helicopter based assault yeah japan's a very similar uh, concept at the minute they're also looking at converting their helicopter destroyers as they call them into light aircraft carriers and, and again they are very much um focused on sort of north korea the risk uh, that North Korea poses in a direct attack, and also the, the uh, humanitarian aspect of, of how useful a carrier can be to them. Um, as you've already mentioned, you know, we've got to remember that part of the world suffers from earthquakes and tsunamis um, at an alarmingly regular, you know, interval. Um, and that kind of capability is definitely something that they want to continue investing in. I mean, even in that area, you don't really even have to continue under the pretense of, you know, humanitarian aid. I mean, the North Koreans are, I mean, fairly threatening in the region. It is it is something that, that has a, a, a far from non-zero chance of, of being utilized in combat. Um, I mean, that's that's one of those few regions in the world where, where you have that sort of imminent threat constantly lay, hanging over your heads. I, I mean, I, I love Seoul, but, but man, it, it is, it, it is, you know, the target of a lot of guns. It's, 
It's but as well as like um, it's like Taiwan procuring an amphibious assault ship. It it's more of a wider move than obviously yes, Taiwan isn't really realistically going to be conducting amphibious assaults, but it's a whole wider diplomatic stuff. You can attach it to various navy various navy groups for exercises and other stuff. You can do it for you can do obviously humanitarian aid to boost your diplomatic standing with countries. Yeah, and it's that it's that power projection. It's you know. It's, they can sail that far further and far further afield than they can sail one of their frigates, which they need closer to home. Yeah, and, and, you know, obviously, of course, they probably, at least Taiwan probably should be putting money into their, you know, F-16 modernization program, you know, the F-16V block, you know, I think it's 70 with a new AN-APG-83 radar. Yeah. That's a big one for them. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, just just for them focusing on that right now, Taiwan is sort of a unique situation just because, you know, the Chinese have made it pretty clear that they're going to invade at some point in the near future. Don't know when, but we know they're going to try. They're going to do it. They're going to probably attempt it at some point. It's like, it's one of those things where Taiwan has to have so much energy, so much energy, political capital and money focused on just a threat that I don't think any other country realistically faces or that on the planet yeah probably south south korea and, and taiwan are probably in the same boat they're, there they're probably the closest that you could see south korea is probably the closest that you could see at taiwan because taiwan has just got like very few countries have a nation the size of china seen you're part of us and we will have you back one day yeah one day soon um you know it's that it's that sort of damocles hanging over you know a small country you know korea is or south korea is a bit better off just because north korea is um sort of constantly on the brink of collapse. They sort of wander from one disaster to the next. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, not not entirely of anyone else's fault at that point. I mean, it, it's North Korea. Let's let's not be overly generous to them here. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, it, it all comes down to that, you know, legitimacy in naval, you know, power projection. That's a big one. Um the ability to assist other people in the area um that's that's a big one as well and you know just that that general ability in any wartime situation to have you know to the the ability to move around aircraft on a platform is huge from from one place to another um and i think it's sorely underrated um i think it's sorely underrated and it's quite often just it's just like we we're saying it's just a it's often widely mis, misunderstood because people just see a carrier as an instrument just for pure offensive operations yeah I mean, yeah and... obviously it is, it, that's an enormous part of its rule it's just it's a it encompasses a far greater variety of rules yeah and you know at, at this point um Obviously, in the South China Sea, freedom of navigation has become a big thing um, for a lot of navies. And obviously, that's where, you know, Carrier Strike Group 21 is going. They're going to be conducting freedom of navigation operations um, in the South the China Royal, Sea. The Royal Navy doesn't do those. Yeah, we, we don't like we that. Don't, we don't. Well, we don't do freedom. We don't even engage in freedom of navigation things. We simply just sail <laughs> in that through. There's no, like specialized like freedom of navigation operations such as deliberate as such as going to a contested area parking an escort or a larger vessel there to do to basically signal that it's not your territory that's not really something to do hence why the entire group's going to avoid the taiwan strait well oh obviously the taiwan strait yeah no i'm not talking about that i'm I'm talking about you know um parcel islands and, and that area 
will be staying well clearer there because it's still not within the Royal Navy's doctrine of what the of sort of what they do. Okay, I was confused on that. I thought they would be operating in the South China Sea. They'll be in the South China Sea, yeah, but it won't be. They're not. They're not poking China's. Okay, gotcha. I was, I was, I guess I was confused on that point. I thought there was some some element of of saying chi- to China that you know they're in our backyard, or yeah, they're they're in their backyard. I mean, it's certainly it's a it's a, it is a message. It, it can be seen. It's obviously it's there in the region where China are active and can be seen will be interpreted by the Chinese and certainly by the Chinese media as such. Yeah, and it's but not are... not as belligerent as the U.S. is. No, but the the Royal Navy has made it pretty clear that it's really focused on the image of they're they're there to promote they're there to work with work with allies and work. They've made it quite clear that they're not to not for solely against China. What? Because they'll be lambasted internally in the media as imperialist. They'll be just it'll it would cause more diplomat it would it would cause dip, more diplomatic issues if you said we're here to counter China rather than we just happen to be in this area. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's worth remembering this is this is Britain trying to push the whole global Britain concept rather than um, trying to start off another trade war with China, um, which obviously we're, we're looking at the US and we've been keeping an eye on things with that in recent months. Um, and I think it goes without saying that at the moment Britain is trying to be slightly more diplomatic about things than the US. Arguably, we shouldn't be. Um, I mean, we're not exactly yeah, uh, known for our subtlety. <laughs> no, no, but um, admittedly, I, I think our stance on things has probably been a little too subtle. Uh, there's not been as much outcry about certain uh, human rights violations, for example, uh, on the part of the Chinese, um, as perhaps there should be. But yeah, uh, as, as Jordan said, it, it's the idea with the the, the carrier actually passing through that region is mainly to sort of say, you know, we're here, we're back. Say hello it, to our allies in Singapore and Australia and Japan and so on, uh, but not so much be there as a confrontation um, to China. It's To be honest, the only aspect of this carrier deployment which is really going to be aggressive in nature is the, the short period of time where we're dealing with Opshader in Syria and Iraq. Yeah, because pre- previously there was no, it was never going to be announced that the that the oper- that you would have sort of that it would be operational and start conducting actual operations. But obviously, this morning the UK woke up and f- early this morning it was announced that yeah, it's going to be participating in that. Which I think it's a great opportunity for the carrier to test a, a, a great test, a great testing ground for it to be to test how it performs and how all the systems perform when you're working with an with an active flight deck with live weapons. Yeah, and and we have seen you know obviously typhoons operating against um, ISIS targets fairly regularly, um, at least in the Euphrates Valley region. Um, yeah. So I would I would I would possibly you know suppose that that they could try something like that um and it would be entirely possible it it is it is operating you know a bit far outside um what normal carrier-borne operations are um you know know, 
the French are busy conducting are doing similar operations as part of their mission, but they moved their carrier into the Persian Gulf for it. Yeah, well, it's it's a bit easier to operate off the Persian Gulf than flying through Israel, um, and then further on into Iraq, um, just because you know obviously you have a lot of um, Syrian uh, air defense systems looking very closely at you. Uh huh. And that's not exactly fun, as as we saw again a few weeks ago when um, a long range shot from the from an SA five system ended up being mistaken for a ballistic missile. Yeah, and 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 uh, <laughs> well, everyone everyone thought you know oh Patriot launch you know something something big's getting intercepted. Um, apparently, it was just a very bad shot by a uh, Sam crew. But but back on to the to the carrier strike group uh, twenty one um, discussion. So when they're going to be transiting through the Red Sea, this is obviously a question I still have. Were there any specific defense um, or defensive postures they were going to take about um, groups operating out of Yemen and, you know, the potential for issues there? I think that's obviously any, it, it's a huge concern because we've seen plenty of commercial ships and Saudi military ships and other military ships being, being the victims of attacks as well by them. There's nothing that's been actually said about it, but I think it's probably going to be a safe bet to assume that they're going to probably have all stick to a formation at a pretty high readiness in case anything does happen. And I can't see any fighter activity being occurring as the pass, as the pass, as the pass through. Yeah, because we well we we know for sure that Houthi groups have um, anti ship missile capabilities. Oh, they've got the they've got the capabilities to hit ships. They've, plenty of times they've made it they've demonstrated that yeah and and you know they obviously aren't wasting missiles on lower value targets they're waiting for you know large stuff to sail through and you know the the queen elizabeth definitely fits the bill there um mm -hmm. as as a potentially very uh opportune target to attack um i just i do wonder with with that subject um whether or not we're going to see some sort of clandestine Israeli activity in the region as the Queen Elizabeth passes through, whether that be at the request of the British government asking for just that little bit of extra protection, or whether or not we potentially see, uh, you know, we the Israelis seen... we haven't seen them doing yet. something that they do. Because bear in mind, we, we've had a couple of incidents in the last month um, of... Iranian and, you know, sort of hostile cargo ships being hit by explosions that seemingly were unexplained. Oh, well, we, uh, we, we absolutely know the Israelis and the Iranians are in a tit-for-tat, you know, shipping war. Happily, happily shooting at each other's cargo Yeah, this, this isn't something that's even slightly mysterious anymore. We pretty much know what's happening for sure. Um, but I think to an extent, though, one advantage that... Obviously, targets, potential targets going through that region have is the Houthis are very t are tied down with offensive in um, quite high intensity offen offensives in Yemen at the moment. True, They're but they do know when and where the ships are going to be. That is, you know, that that's a big one. Obviously, you know, yeah. the U.S. moves ships through th through the region with a bit more, um, not secrecy, but a bit less warning um, mm -hmm. into the future. And that'll be certainly something to uh, to at the least French see. The French came through with plenty pre pre announcement that that's the route it's going to take, and nothing happened to them. So yeah, I and think we, more we than might adequate. be the, the we, carrier's defenses are more than adequate. I think to 
deal with a potential issue. Yeah, and we might be overstating the threat. Um, that that might just be the other issue. Um, it. I think it's certainly a threat, but I think at the same time though, they would have to probably quite bal- quite uh, balance if they're gonna if they're gonna attack large high value Western assets. I think they know the response is gonna be pretty damn negative for them. That they, they, they're gonna have a they're gonna have a response. Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, that is that is something I definitely expect. Um, you know, will will we see the carrier actively you know launching and recovering planes while they transit through the um through the straits there? But I, you know, maybe maybe we're overestimating the threat. It just it definitely seems like a very opportune target. Um, for any group that wanted to make a statement, and, you know, we 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 could see what the results end up, you know, being there. Yeah. I'm sure the Iranians also, you know, um, that is the last thing I wanted to hit on. Whatever is happening in Iran right now, <laughs> that well, that is. What, what, yeah, that's well. You had um, I can't even pronounce the foreign minister's name. Um, uh, Zarif. Yeah, Zarif. Zarif. Um, his office was raided by the IRGC. Basically, Zarif is one of the at least more liberal individuals in Iran. I know, I, I know that's you know that's um definitely not much. <laughs> that's not saying much, obviously, but he's definitely a lot more liberal than members of the IRGC. Um, and the question right now is, are the IRGC operating outside the purview of the elected government, which they usually do? with some amount of leeway, but have they just completely bucked the institutional leadership and elections are coming up soon. They are running a candidate for president. Um, and, and I'm not saying he's gaslit, but there was a fairly large controversy um, where during his press announcement, they basically put up a bunch of microphones with a bunch of different names of networks and like half the networks that were listed came out and said yeah we weren't at that press conference they they faked our microphones um so there there is a certain level of you know not manchurian candidate going on but there there's something interesting here um i mean i think the irjc definitely have a level of hands off a a government have a have quite a level of hands off when it comes to them and kind of certainly with their foreign operations they seem to basically take matters into their own hands yeah, and I think they're probably concerned by the chance of a nuclear deal, um, at least materializing, because that, you know, the, the IRGC thrives off chaos. That is what they yeah. like. They they like the status quo where, you know, Iran has a bunch of enemies and they're able to attack at them. If that goes well, away, they, you know... They thrived off the chaos of the Syrian civil war. Oh, they love that. That was, you know, one of their, their best... That's their, that's their playground. Yeah, that was one of their best routes to get government funding and, you know, operation. At this point, though, you have to look and you have to say, are they looking to do something that would cause the deal to either fall apart? Or, you know, are they looking to cause issues domestically and internationally? Um, And at least the raid of those senior government offices, we saw, you know, they seem to somewhat be taking their own tack here. Where they're acting even more independent than normal. Um, they're, they're actively going after elected leadership. They're, you know, taking action against um, that, that civilian side of the leadership. And, you know, are they concerned? Is, is there something materially threatening their, you know, their power inside the country? And 
will they take action against that? That's 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 the question at the end of the day. Yeah, and uh, it, it's worth saying as well. We we've kind of seen this lull in sort of blatant IRGC activity in Lebanon and Israel and Iraq, and that, that seems to have come to an end in the last sort of forty eight hours. Obviously, these the, t- the two rocket attacks that we've seen in in Iraq. Um, yeah, th- so those think, those were sort of half-hearted attacks yeah, as well. Yeah. They do seem to have pulled back on the amount of effort they're putting into these attacks. Um, and again, as, as you say, that is likely because of the political situation in Iran at the moment. Um, that is obviously more of a focus for them rather than everything else that's going on in the world. Um, and it... I've obviously voiced my opinions on on this on Twitter on numerous occasions. But this the current uh, deal that is being pushed for um, by the US and and supposedly also by Iran. Um, it's definitely a cause for concern for anyone uh, who's not familiar with it. Um, the long and the short of it is the US is trying to push for a nuclear deal with Iran. Um, obviously, there was a nuclear deal, which, so far as we can tell, Iran probably never actually stuck to. Um, Iran is now at the point where it's enriching uranium at an ever-increasing rate and is potentially... Yeah, it's 60% um, right now. And is potentially getting very close now to having weapons-grade uh, uranium available to it. Um, and yet, despite this, the US is seemingly blindly trying to still push for a deal um, well at this point the two options um not something it's willing to do i think the issue right now is that we've sort of come to the end of the rope here where they are so close to acquiring a weapon that the only real options are compre- are either a comprehensive deal that at least sets them back you know five ten years where we're you know we're kicking the can down the road a bit versus you know risking bombing, you know, Iranian nuclear sites and attempting to stop them that way. There there really isn't any in-between position there. Um, they aren't going to collapse, you know, economically or politically before they get a nuclear weapon. Um, we're fairly, you know, certain of that at this point. Um, and you're sort of coming to the point where you really only have two options. Either one is diplomatic and one is... Um, and and one is fairly violent and and will require you know comprehensive deep airstrikes into Iranian territory which i mean you know i'll obviously wax poetic about the ability of the US military but it's not something that they would get away with you know unscathed and it would probably provoke an Iranian response you know if we were to attack you know nuclear facilities in Iran you would see you know the shutdown of the strait of hormuz you would see you know Iranians start to push out through their Houthi militia groups into the Red Sea and start attacking, you know, tanker traffic headed to um, the Suez Canal. And we saw how bad it was when the Suez Canal was shut. I, I would not put it past Iran to to do some sort of offensive actions to try to repeat that. Um, you just... I, I think as well, it's, it's, it's interesting that Israel, you know, as much as it would love for there to be a deal and for there to be peace in the region, it is not committing itself to the US efforts for a deal because it recognizes that there is very little value to the deal that is currently being fleshed out. 
I mean, at the minute, the, the US's uh, latest position is effectively that, yes, okay, we'll have a deal, but no, Iran doesn't have to, you know, actually cancel its weapons program, and the US will still go ahead and withdraw the sanctions. And you just think, well, hang on a second, that's just appeasement. That's that's not actually trying to get a deal that prevents nuclear weapons from being in, in Iran's control. That's that's letting them carry on and sort of saying to them, look, you, you, you know, you've not responded the way we thought you would, so we're just going to let you get on with it and do nothing I, about it. I mean, the main, goal, you say, the main goal at this point with the deal is more to delay than anything. Um, they're... I mean, you're stuck between this between a rock and a hard place at this point, between a very, very costly war. I, like, you have three options. Either one, to just accept that Iran gets nuclear weapons and try to counter it then, um, participate in a very, very costly war, or try to delay it with some sort of diplomatic action. I think the U.S. is at least trying to go with diplomatic action first before anything else. I mean, always the diplomatic route is always, in fact, is always going to be the first and most advisable option that you'll try every every avenue of that that path. Yeah, and that's that's why they're trying to hash out a deal right now because, again, five years of delay is better than you know a, a wide ranging, horrifying war in the region right as they're as we're coming out of the tail end of you know the pandemic, when we we all know the global economy is incredibly fragile right now. Um, and a war right now would be just so incredibly damaging. I, I do feel, however, that the US position has kind of forgotten, um, I think it was President Roosevelt put it, speak softly and carry a big stick. Um, and I, I think to a certain extent, the Biden administration seems to have forgotten to carry the big stick, seem to just be speaking softly. And on the other end of the spectrum you've got israel who is repeatedly showing that it has absolutely no issue with sending in you know Mossad or carrying out whatever airstrikes it has to do to ensure that this delay to iran's nuclear program happens yeah and i'm sure it, i'm sure the u.s is relying on israel to keep you know going forward with clandestine actions to continue to delay the program as much as possible in order to give every country a bit more breathing room in this situation so as we're uh, coming towards the end um i haven't done this for a couple of weeks because it's been a bit hectic uh, and i haven't really been able to prepare an awful lot for a little while but i'm just going to run through a few of the sort of news stories that have come out over the last couple of days uh, in the defense world um We've got the announcement today that Egypt has secured a deal with France uh, for another 30 Rafale uh, fast jets uh, in a deal worth 3.9 billion euros. Um, Egypt's obviously already ordered a significant number of the uh, Dassault jets um, and has been putting them to good use uh, in various internal operations as well as in the sort of primary air defence role that they carry out for the nation. Um, as mentioned earlier, Holland has confirmed that their frigate, the Evertsen, uh, will enter the Black Sea with uh, the two UK warships during the visit later this year. Um, and also confirmed for us that there will be port visits to India, Indonesia, Singapore, South Korea and Japan during that deployment. Um, 
as we also mentioned earlier a little bit, there's been another rocket attack this evening. Uh, it's been two evenings in a row now. Um, three rockets were fired yesterday evening towards uh, Camp Victory at Baghdad International Airport. And then there's been another three rockets fired at Balad Air Base this evening in Iraq, uh, both locations housing US troops. Um, we haven't had an awful lot more information about the attack this evening, um, but yesterday evening's attack, there were no casualties, and one of the rockets was actually shot down uh, by the US CRAM system, according to local sources. Um, Turkey has turned one of its target drones that it's had in service since, I believe, 2012. It's turned this uh, drone design into a kamikaze weapon uh, with a 200-kilometer range. Um, this is obviously the latest in a, in a series of sort of unmanned kamikaze uh, weapon systems um, that sort of came to the fore in the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Yeah, and I, I just... Ago. I have to jump in here because this is an issue that I've been at least advocating or focusing on for a while, but small drones are the future of mid-intensity conflicts and, and potentially large-intensity conflicts in, you know, moving into the future, um, especially with countries that don't have as much money um, for defense funding, packing, you know, a, a, a several, you know, a couple hundred kilograms of high explosive onto, you know, a twenty or thirty thousand dollar drone and flying it directly into an enemy tank, that's incredibly cheap. And right now there aren't really any great counters to that, um any more than there would be to, to any other kind of attack. Um so it's it's just it's this really cost effective option at putting explosives downrange. And I think we're definitely gonna see that more. Um just this more more matured suicide drone going into the future. And I think Larger countries may start to develop that into, you know, I, I, more of a, a an advanced model, potentially with swarming or some other, you know, a type of technology sort of building off of it. But right now, it's, you know, field deployable. And we're looking at this, you know, this incredibly, I wouldn't say mature, but well-developed weapons platform um, that, that has proven to work. And that's fairly amazing, I think. Yeah, and I think, as you say, that the simplicity of it, the fact that they are taking a, you know, what was originally a target drone for, you know, anti-aircraft weapons and literally just reconfiguring it slightly, fitting it with a warhead, and, and suddenly it's got a 200-kilometer range and a 5-kilo warhead, and it can, you know, can cause a serious amount of damage to targets um, is definitely something that, a lot of nations are going to need to start paying attention to if they haven't already. Yeah, and I know Iran is definitely, um, they've displayed one they've developed with a with a fairly large explosive payload. I think it was somewhere around 100 kilos. Um, it's a it's a fairly uh, fat um, autonomous uh, drone. Um, but but something like that is, is really threatening to, you know, commercial shipping, to smaller, you know, boats, to land installations, and even, even to larger ships. Um especially once they get, you know, that whole swarming technique under control. I'll I'll let you get back to the news now. Sorry, I just I had to jump in there with my spiel about, you know, how drones are the future of um, you know, different different forms of combat. Uh the US Army has announced that it will be con conducting a an artillery live firing exercise uh, across Europe um starting on the 5th of May and lasting until the 19th of June. Um, 
the exercises called Fires Shock uh, will take place uh, and they've issued a press release uh, to that effect today. Um, as mentioned earlier, the US and UK F-35s have touched down on board HMS Queen Elizabeth um, and the ships are all now at sea, preparing to make their way around to Scotland. And uh, I don't know if it's worth mentioning, because I don't think we really worked out quite what was going on with it, but yesterday there was a major fire at a chemical factory in Iran near Qum. Um, I don't believe we've heard an awful lot more about that so far. Do, do, do we know if that was just a, a fire, an accident, or was there something more to that story? Uh, unknown at this point. Um, From at least six hours ago, it was still unknown. I haven't seen anything right. else come out since then. So as as of Monday afternoon, um, U.S. Eastern Time, that is where we stand. And uh, last but by no means least, Boeing has confirmed that it is facing $318 million in losses on the program for the U.S. Air Force's future Air Force One, uh, the VC-25B. Um, this comes, according to them, as a combination of COVID-19 and ongoing disputes with suppliers um, to uh, VC-25Bs based on the 747-8 intercontinental airframes are due to replace the VC-25s based on the 747-400 airframes uh, sometime in the next 10 years. Yeah, this this one was just embarrassing. Um, they they were already produced airframes. They you know they they were practically finished by the time the U.S. contracted Boeing for it, and um, it was supposed to be a cost saving measure. And yeah, that that ended well. And uh, just before we finish, um, a number of you have been contacting various of us on Twitter and elsewhere, um, asking when the when, when this podcast is going to be moving to other platforms. Obviously, at the minute. Um, we are on YouTube, and this is sort of where we've started out. Um, I can assure you we are looking at getting onto other platforms. Um, it is a little more complicated than we imagined, so that may take a little bit longer, but please bear with us, um, and we will announce uh, when the episodes go live on other platforms in due course. Anything either of you two want to add? Uh, that's everything from me. Yeah, I, I think that is... Um everything I, I i thank god it was a more quiet couple of weeks um that was a godsend after after the last month and change of uh tensions it it feels a lot better so thank you very much for listening ladies and gentlemen um and from uh jordan myself technical and uh also of course tom who wasn't able to join us this evening uh thank you very much for listening and we will catch you for the next episode in about two weeks time bye for now